on reception into the Orthodox Church. The account of the renowned Catholic priest, monk, and scholar, Father Placid, and how he and his brotherhood were received into the Orthodox Church by Elder Emilianos of Simona Petra, Mount Athos. The following account is from the Living Witness of the Holy Mountain, Contemporary Voices from Mount Athos. Father Placid writes, It was only very gradually that I came to the conclusion that the Orthodox Church is the Church of Christ in her fullness, and that the Roman Catholic Church is a member separated from her. Such a trek would doubtless have been easier for younger men, or for men less integrated than I was into the Roman Church. For a Catholic of my generation, the idea of papal primacy was deeply rooted. Besides, in the earliest years at the Trappist Monastery, I had known the Latin tradition in one of its purest forms, well preserved until very recently. I had also known monks, nuns, and fervent Christians who had shown with a deep spiritual life. Towards the end of 1976, however, my brothers at Abazin and I were impressed with the certainty that we could no longer delay. We had to plan for our entry into the Orthodox Church. Should it be quickly, or should we wait for a more favorable opportunity? Some objections appeared. We were fairly well known in the Catholic world. Our monastery had a modest but real influence. Would it not be preferable, for the time being, to remain among Roman Catholics, in order to help them in rediscovering their roots, in returning to the common sources of the two traditions? Would this not be more prudent, more in keeping with charity, more likely to further Christian unity? Besides, was this not the only way to safeguard the very existence of our monastery at Abazin, and so continue to the work we had already begun? But how could we remain loyal members of the Catholic Church, and so continue to profess outwardly all her dogmas, when inwardly we were convinced that certain of these dogmas had departed from the tradition of the Church? How could we continue to share in the same Eucharist, while aware of our differences regarding the faith? How could we remain outside the Orthodox Church, outside of which there could be no salvation and life in the Spirit for those who, having recognized her as the Church of Christ, refuse to join her for human motives? To give in to considerations of ecumenical diplomacy, opportunity, and personal convenience would, in our case, have been to seek to please men rather than God, and to lie both to men and to God. Nothing could have justified such duplicity. Where could we best be received into the Church? We knew that the situation of the Orthodox Church in France is a delicate one, that her bishops must take into account the overwhelming presence of the Catholic majority and strive to keep their relationship with the Catholic hierarchy as amicable as possible. We were concerned that our reception into the Orthodox Church might arouse considerable opposition in some Catholic circles and that this could only be harmful for the Orthodox Church in France. The events following our reception only prove that we were correct, indeed even more so than we had thought. Several well-known Orthodox people whom we consulted at the times made no secret of the fact that it would, in fact, be expedient for us to be received outside of France. In previous years we had made several journeys to Orthodox countries, Romania, Serbia, Greece, and Mount Athos. 
At the times, we had no thought of joining the Orthodox Church, but had wanted to acquire first-hand knowledge of Orthodoxy and become acquainted with her liturgical and monastic life. We had particularly liked Romania, in which we had seen the combination of a lively monasticism, including some very remarkable spiritual personalities and a population animated by a deep faith and piety. But now that the problem of our reception into the church had arisen, we did not feel that the domestic situation in Romania would allow us to set up a canonical bond between ourselves and this church, which still remains very dear to us. Then a series of circumstances, in which we could not but see the hand of God, opened for us the doors of the monastery of Simonis Petras on Mount Athos. Father Placid continues to describe various conversations he had with Roman Catholic clergy, and then continues to describe the trip he and his brotherhood took to Mount Athos. Mount Athos and the Church in France since 1978 We left shortly afterward for the Holy Mountain. Our acquaintance with the Orthodox Church and her monasticism was still superficial and inadequate. The opportunity of receiving within the monastery a sound introduction to this way of life was an invaluable gift. Simonas Petras was remarkable as much for the spiritual personality of its abbot as for the youthfulness and spiritual vigor of its community. On several occasions, Catholic monks had been received very hospitably as visitors, and the problems and realities of the West were at this monastery particularly well known and understood. Our first stay at Athos dated back to the spring of 1971. In those days, people in the West spoke of the Holy Mountain only in terms of decline and decay, and there was no lack of voices predicting the complete extinction of Athenite monasticism in the very near future. This first visit had already given us to understand that categories such as decline, or conversely renewal, are quite inadequate when speaking of Orthodox monasticism. They bring to mind primarily the external, sociological, and statistical aspects of the situation. But the essential thing is the inner life, and that eludes investigations of this kind. There had certainly been a considerable drop in numbers. This was due, so far as the Slavonic monasteries were concerned, to the consequences of the establishment of the Soviet regime in Russia, and, with regard to the Greeks, to the forced exodus in 1922 which had destroyed the flourishing Greek-Christian civilization of Asia Minor, and afterwards the Second World War and the Greek Civil War. By 1971, however, this reduction in numbers had stabilized, and the recovery had slowly begun. Then it suddenly accelerated to an unhoped-for extent. Thanks to the arrival of large numbers of novices and young monks, monasteries that had contained no more than a few elderly monks came one by one, back to life again. It must be made clear that the young monks whom one meets everywhere on Athos today in no way claim to be either renewing or changing its monastic life. On the contrary, they tend rather to take up again the most traditional and strict way of life by abandoning the moderation of idiorhythmic monasticism. They want only to be disciples and they benefit from the experience of very gifted spiritual fathers, whom the Holy Mountain has never lacked. The elder Silouan, 
who lived on Athos from 1892 to 1938, is well known in the West thanks to the books of Father Sophroni. But during the same period, there were many monks on Athos whose intensity of spiritual life yielded nothing to his own. Several monasteries are under direction of spiritual fathers who were themselves given their formation by Father Joseph, a hesychast, died 1959, whose splendid spiritual letters have recently been published in Greece. The monks of Mount Athos are often criticized for their opposition to ecumenism and are quite happily accused of sacrificing love for truth. We readily saw, from the time of our first visit when we were still Roman Catholics with no thought whatever of becoming Orthodox, how well the monks knew how to combine a gracious and attentive love towards other people, whatever their religious convictions and allegiance, with doctrinal intransigence. As they see it, moreover, total respect for the truth is one of the first duties that love for the other requires of them. They have no particular doctrinal position. They simply profess the faith of the Orthodox Church. The Church is one, and this one and true Church which safeguards the continuity of ecclesial life, that is, the unity of the tradition, is orthodoxy. To allow that this one and true Church, in its pure form, is not to be found on earth, but that it is partially contained in different branches, would be to have no faith in the church and in her head. Quite simply, the Athenites want this conviction to be in keeping with their deeds. They cannot approve of words or behavior that would seem to imply a de facto recognition of the branch theory. Christian unity, which is as dear to their hearts as anyone's, can only be brought to pass by the agreement of the non-Orthodox to the integrity and fullness of the apostolic faith. It could never be the fruit of compromise or of efforts born of a natural and human aspiration for unity among men. This would be to cheapen the deposit of faith entrusted to the Church. In ecumenism, as in the spiritual life, the Athenite position is one of sobriety and discernment. If one wants to please God and enter into his kingdom, one must know how to assess the movements of one's feelings as well as the rationalizings of one's mind. Above all, one must give up being pleasing to men. The Question of Baptism During our first conversations with Father Emilianos, the abbot of Simonas Petras, about our entry into Orthodoxy, he had not concealed from us that, in his eyes, the customary and most appropriate form of entry into the Orthodox Church was through baptism. I had never thought about this aspect of Orthodox ecclesiology, and at the time, I was quite surprised by it. I made a careful study of the problem, beginning with the canonical and patristic sources. I also found several articles written by Catholic and Orthodox theologians and canonists to be quite helpful. After a thorough examination of the question, and with the full agreement of our new abbot, Elder Amelianos, it was decided that, when the time came, we would be received into the Orthodox Church by baptism. This later aroused surprise and sometimes indignation in those Catholic or Orthodox circles that were little acquainted with the theological and canonical tradition of the Greek Church. Since a large amount of inaccurate information has been circulated on this subject, 
I think it right to give here some historical and doctrinal details that will serve for a better understanding of the facts. Since the 3rd century, two customs have coexisted in the Church for the reception of heterodox Christians. Reception by the imposition of hands, or by chrismation, and repetition of the baptismal rite already received in heterodoxy. Rome accepted only the laying on of hands and strongly condemned the repetition of the baptism of heretics. The churches of Africa and Asia, on the other hand, held on the second practice, the most ardent defenders of which were St. Cyprian of Carthage and Firmilian of Caesarea. The latter two insisted on the bond that exists between the sacraments of the church. For them, a minister who had separated himself from the church's profession of faith had separated himself at the same time from the church herself, and so could no longer administer her sacraments. From the 4th century, the Roman doctrine on the validity of heterodox sacraments, upheld by the exceptional authority of St. Augustine in the West, was imposed on the whole Latin church, at least in matters of baptism. The question of the validity of the heterodox ordination of priests was not generally accepted in the West until the 13th century. In the East, however, thanks especially to the influence of St. Basil, the ecclesiology and sacramental theology of St. Cyprian never ceased to be considered as more in conformity with the tradition and spirit of the Church than the doctrine of St. Augustine, who in any case was largely unknown in the Greek-speaking Church. The principal canonical basis for the non-recognition of heterodox sacraments is the 46th Apostolic Canon, which declares, We order that a bishop, priest, or deacon who has admitted the baptism or sacrifice of heretics be deposed. These apostolic canons, confirmed by the 6th Ecumenical Council in Trullo in 692, comprise the foundations of Orthodox canon law. The practice of economy in certain cases is authorized by Canon I of St. Basil the Great. So far as present practice is concerned, the reception of Catholics by baptism is very clearly prescribed in the Pedalion, an official compendium of canon law for the churches of the Greek language, in which the text of the canons is accompanied by commentaries by St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, a very great authority. For the territories under the jurisdiction of the Patriarchate of Constantinople, the decree prescribing the rebaptism of Catholics has never been abolished. As for the Church of Greece, quote, those who wish to embrace orthodoxy must be invited to rebaptism, and only in those cases where this is not possible should they be received by anointing with holy chrism. Unquote. Athos vocation is a crivia in all spheres. It is normal for the non-Orthodox who become monks there to be received by baptism. Yet the monks of Athos are not men given to the constant condemnation of others, nor do they prefer severity to mercy, nor are they attached to a narrow-minded rigorism. The issue is on an altogether different level. Some people have written that by imposing a new baptism on us, the monks of Athos forced us to repudiate and mock the whole of our past as Catholic monks. Others have also written that, to the contrary, it was we who asked for baptism, contrary to the wishes of our abbot, Elder Emilianos, in order to satisfy the most rigorous minority of Athenite monks. 
These assertions have nothing to do with reality. The monks of Athos, in fact, imposed nothing on us. They did not oblige us to become Athenite monks, and they left us perfectly free to be received into orthodoxy by different means elsewhere. Nor were we looking to please anyone at all. But since we had chosen, as we said above, to become monks on Mount Athos, we could only be received in the way accepted by men whom we held to be our fathers and brothers, and whose way of thinking we knew perfectly well. We asked freely to be received by baptism, in complete agreement with our abbot Elder Amelianos, because this procedure seemed to us both right and necessary for Athos, both theologically sound and canonically correct. This was not to deny our Catholic baptism received in the name of the Trinity, but to confess that everything it signified was fulfilled by our entry into the Orthodox Church. Return to France We were received into the Orthodox Church on June 19, 1977. A few months later, on February 26, 1978, we became monks of Simonus Petras. We had told our abbot that we were equally prepared to stay on the Holy Mountain or return to France, leaving the decision to him. He thought it better that we establish ourselves in France. Thus, two Metokia, subsidiaries, of Simonas Petros were formed, one at Martel on the Quercy Plateau, and the other in Dauphine, in a deep valley in the Vercors. By reason of their status as Metokia, these two monasteries are directly dependent on Simonas Petras, which, like all the Athenite monasteries, is under the jurisdiction of the ecumenical patriarch. Any activity outside the monastery is done within the framework of the Greek Orthodox Metropolia of France, and with the blessing of its metropolitan, Miletios, with whom we enjoy a very close and trusting relationship. We asked freely to be received by baptism, in complete agreement with our abbot Elder Emilianos, because this procedure seemed to us both right and necessary for Athos, both theologically sound and canonically correct.